Our text this morning is Psalm 89. Psalm 89. It's another text traditionally read at Advent, and as we shall see, for very good reasons. Because this is a text, a long text. It's a text which has a surprising fulfillment. It has a long and somewhat tangled history. And the way it comes to fruition surpasses all expectations and is, in fact, at the center of the glory of Christmas. We are, I think, well aware that when the eternal Son of God becomes man, he fulfills all of the promises, all the covenant promises made to Israel. That's certainly a a sort of basic Christian truism. As the seed of Abraham, he fulfills the promises made to Abraham. As the obedient sacrifice, he fulfills the Mosaic law. But the covenant of kingship made with David and our Lord's fulfillment of that is something which is often less clear to us and it's certainly given less emphasis. There's a lot of talk about Abraham and the covenant and the Mosaic covenant. You don't hear a lot of talk about the Davidic covenant. And yet this being in the line of David, being David's son, assuming the throne of David, these realities have their fingerprints all over the Christmas story. The hymnody of Christmas, the genealogies in the Gospels, the readings in the lectionary. The whole story of Christmas is a Davidic story. And Psalm 89 helps us to see why. And so we'll make four points. Praise for the covenant. And again, by covenant here, we mean the covenant of kingship that God made with David. What is commonly called the Davidic covenant. Praise for the covenant, that's in verses 1 through 4. The power of the covenant in verses 17 through 29. The progeny of the covenant, by which I mean the offspring, but I needed a P. I wanted to have four... So the third one is progeny of the covenant in verses 30 through 37. And then the profaning of the covenant, which will deal with what comes after our text in the psalm. Praise, power, progeny, profaning. So first then, praise for the covenant. Psalm 89, really the, the classical Davidic psalm. There's a few others. 132, 118, but this is the classical place. Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the Lord's great love, His covenant love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. Notice this at the outset of the psalm. The psalmist seizes upon this idea of forever. We have forever and through all generations. And forever is repeated seven more times throughout the psalm. And here it's a declaration that the psalmist will extol or acclaim the Lord's loyal love, his fidelity through all generations. It's not that the psalmist expects to live on forever, but he expects the theme of his song to resound down through history. Israel's history. And indeed, through this text, 
the psalmist's song rings on down through the ages. And this, this singing, this making known, must last forever. Verse 2 tells us, because the Lord's love stands firm forever. And the, this love here, the love that's in view, is the covenant love shown in the pact. That the agreement, the covenant that God made with David, which comes into view early in verse 3. You said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. Notice how the psalmist at the outset has bound a couple of things together here. The eternal love of God. The everlasting faithfulness of God. And the Davidic covenant. Three things which are maybe not bundled together in our mind quite as tightly as they are in the psalmist's mind. Everything hinges. God's love and faithfulness on this covenant. So verse 3 says, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. Notice the language of the covenant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. This refers to the 2 Samuel 7 text, which was read in the first lesson this morning. God there promises David an everlasting dynasty. This is what Isaiah calls the unshakable, firm, sure mercies of David. David's line, his seed, his progeny, is to endure forever, and his throne is to endure throughout all generations. It's a magnificent promise. This is the heart of the emphasis on the forever in the text. It's in that Second Samuel text. It's all over this psalm. Forever, forever, forever. You, David, are promised a dynasty forever. And yet, as we will see, events intervene. And they seem, these events, to have dashed, to have contradicted the promise of God. That's why the title in the sermon has a question mark after it. In this sense, the psalmist is building an argument with God from God's own promises. And he's going to take up his case quite vigorously. We skipped a large part of Psalm 89, but you can read it. But for now, the rehearsal of God's Davidic promises continues with our second point. The power of the covenant. Verse 19, God spoke in a vision and said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I raised up a young man from among the people. I found my servant, David. I anointed him with oil. Right, this refers back to the material in 1 Samuel where David is chosen. And he's anointed by Samuel as the king. Notice that David, like the one whom he points to, is a servant king. He's going to... Point to the one who will be both a suffering servant and a king. And upon David, the text says, strength, power has been given. He shares somehow in the divine rule. The Davidic kingship is important because it's a living symbol of God as king. And it's, it, and it's also a living symbol of the unity of the people of God. And so the text goes on to say that David's enemies won't outwit him. They won't subdue him. He'll subdue his adversaries. He's going to have this grand sweeping dominion, which you can see in verses 24 and 25. 
And then verse 26, He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the Rock, my Savior. And I will appoint Him to be my firstborn. So whoever this Davidic king is, first it's David, but the Davidic king is God's firstborn, a unique son who represents Israel because Israel is God's firstborn son. Exodus 4, God tells Moses that to go tell Pharaoh, let my son go. Israel is my son. So what does it mean when the text calls David the firstborn? It means he's, he's the heir. He gets a double portion, if you will, of sovereign dominion. He inherits God's realm. And thus the text says he'll be the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And the New Testament picks these themes up and calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, the ruler of the kings of the earth. These are Davidic terms. So the psalmist lays all this out. These are God's promises. He's reinforced them. You can see it again in verse 28 and 29. He's reinforced the permanence with the the idea of forever, forever, forever. My covenant will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. So the third point then is the progeny or the offspring. The future kings who will follow David. And here the point is relatively clear. You can see it in verses 30 through 32. If David's sons forsake the law, if they violate the covenant, they're going to be punished. They can't presume that they're not going to suffer divine judgment just because of their everlasting promises to their father David. Now here we see something. The psalmist knows his material well. God said they'd be disciplined, but discipline doesn't mean rejection. It doesn't mean nullification of the promise. No matter how many kings are faithless, God said he would uphold the promise of an everlasting line and an eternal monarchy or dynasty or throne for David. So beginning in verse 33, what the psalmist does is he reminds God of what he had promised. You said, but I will not take my love from him. It doesn't matter how many Davidic kings are wicked. I am not going to take my love from David. Unlike Saul, whom God removed him, and he removed his line from the monarchy, that will not happen to David. The love of God guarantees it. Again, the psalmist sets this forth with some vigor. I will never betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. I shall not alter what my lips have uttered. God has sworn by his holiness. He will not lie to David. So, all of that rehearsal of the Davidic covenant is a prelude to the fourth point, which is the profaning of the covenant. And this brings us to the heart of the text. Now, we didn't read the next section of the psalm, beginning at verse 38. But it comes either from some time of national disaster or probably from the exile, the Babylonian exile in the 6th century, where the king was carried into captivity. And the city was burned, and the temple was destroyed, and the land was laid waste. That's the setting of the psalm. 
And it is in the psalmist's eyes a shocking abandonment of all the promises made to David. It's very important to feel the force of this. I know it's hard and it seems foreign to us, but it's at the very heart of the mystery of the Incarnation. Let me summarize what the psalmist says here. He lays this at God's feet. He uses the word you, meaning God. So he's talking to God here and the conversation is heated. He uses the word you nearly a dozen times. He says this to God. You have rejected. You have spurned. You have been angry. You, and then he says this shockingly, you have renounced the covenant. You have defiled the king's crown in the dust. You have broken down his walls and his strongholds. You have let him be plundered. You have exalted the hands of his foes. You've made his enemies rejoice. You've turned back the edge of his sword. You've put an end to his splendor. You've cast his throne in the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. It's quite a beef that he has with God. Right? He has spent all this time delineating that this promise is forever, 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 forever. David's line, David's throne. David's line, David's throne. And now we have the Babylonian exile and the monarchy is shattered by the enemies of God. There is no Davidic king anywhere to be found. This is why the Davidic covenant is so important. From the exile onward, for hundreds of years, Israel would have no king. And the monarchy would lie in ruins, apparently never to be restored. And the psalm ends, it ends with this desperate, heartsick prayer for God to remember his love and his faithfulness promised to David. So I want to say a few words about this situation, and I hope they're practically important. There are times, and we have one of them here, where the providences of God seem to flatly contradict his promises. This is not news, I hope, to many of you. I know, on some level, many of us have experienced this. I know many of you have experienced it. I know some of you are experiencing it this hour. It does no good to pretend as if this is not the case. It's painful and it's disheartening. It's disorienting. And in this instance, the pain is bitter and acute. The psalmist cannot square the promises about the Davidic monarchy with the current state of affairs. There is just no way to do it. And we often cannot square the promises of God with the pain and disappointment in life. We try to do it. We paper it over. The psalmist is angry here. He's full of these unanswered and apparently unanswerable questions. And what he doesn't need is for some counselors of Job to come along to him with their pious platitudes. A platitude is a thing which is true, but which is trite in the lips of the person and in the context in which they speak it into. 
As if the psalmist has somehow just forgotten some basic theology. Well, Mr. Psalmist, you know God always keeps his promises. So you shouldn't accuse him of renouncing the covenant. Well, of course he shouldn't. But the wound here is deep and wounded people say stuff. And healing their wounds is going to require giving them a lot of rope. God gives the psalmist a lot of rope. An abundance of forbearing grace. I always say this, hold the platitudes until your city is burned. And your family's been raped and killed and plundered and pillaged. And your civilization is laid waste. Then come and tell me what I should and shouldn't say. God does not rebuke the psalmist here. I mean, he does finally rebuke Job, but it's not with the kind of pious platitudes that you might get from one of us, right? It's things like, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So God understands the depths of the crisis that the psalmist is in. I mean, it is, after all, a crisis provoked precisely because the psalmist takes God seriously. And he takes his word and his promises with utmost seriousness. This kind of friction and internal dismay does not happen to casual believers. It happens to serious people. If he didn't know the Davidic promises in such depth, the quarrel would evaporate. I can picture him weeping on the road to exile in Babylon with his compatriots and, and, and them saying, Oh, really? There's a promise in 2 Samuel? Uh, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't jive with that. Right? There were probably Israelites who didn't understand the implications of it, who didn't have the theology of the psalmist, who forgotten that there were promises to the Davidic kingship. So these questions, and even accusations, they, you don't accuse a God that you're disinterested in. Right? They arise from the context of faith. They culminate in prayer, in this prayer. And so shaken and wavering, white-knuckled faith Belief mingled with unbelief needs this kind of dialogue with God. It cannot be made better. It cannot be, as, as Jeremiah says, you cannot heal the wounds of the people of God lightly. It needs this kind of dialogue. You might need to talk to God this way about something in your life. I mean, it's, like, it's, like, it's not like he doesn't know what you're thinking. God can handle our doubts and our questions and our brutal honesty and our despair and our faltering belief and our anger and our accusations. It's not like we're the first and we're not going to be the last to engage in a heated conversation with the living God. He's heard it all before. He's very difficult to surprise. The history of the world, the whole history of Israel is full of people questioning God. The prophets are full of this sort of stuff, and there's a dozen other psalms we could invoke. The rock of God's fidelity is not going to wither and melt just because we thrash against it. You know, in the fullness of time, 
in the fullness of time, he will hear the bitterest question of all from the lips of his own son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about accusing God of renouncing his fidelity. That question is underneath all of our darkness. That question undergirds and bears up all of our questioning, even our sinful atheistic questioning. That question is God questioning God. And so what the psalmist has done here is not just rehearse an ancient history. Yeah, it's a long history of Israel. Things don't seem to go well. This is the prelude to the gospel. Christmas is incomprehensible without the agony of this text. And Christmas is thinned out, thinned out without the agony of this text. An agony to be prolonged for centuries. So what happens? The monarchy is cut down. But the line of David endures, and the prophets had foreseen this. Both Jeremiah and Isaiah speak of the Lord raising up like a branch or a root from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse speaks of the monarchy being cut down to a stump. A root would spring up out of dry ground. The prophets saw that the monarchy in its faithlessness would be cut down. It would be like the stump of a tree. But the Davidic line, sons of David, would endure just like a tree itself is not destroyed if its root system is intact. And out of that unpromising stump, there would be a shoot or a branch, the Messiah himself. And he would spring forth. He'd fulfill all the promises to David. Nevertheless, let me say this. It is hard to blame the psalmist here. There are, in fact, texts like the ones he cites from First and Second Samuel, which read a certain way, seem plainly to imply that the monarchy itself would be uninterrupted from the time of David forever. The psalmist is a good theologian. But the prophets saw that God would fulfill these texts in a mysterious and a surprising and a magnificent way in a death and resurrection kind of way, through a future son of David. I often wonder, you know, about a text like this, is if if the psalmist were to get this news, you know, would it comfort him? We, as Americans, we're not people who think in terms of corporate solidarity and long-term covenantal promises. I mean, would it comfort you if someone said, yes, your city, your life, your family, your extended family, your nation is going to be devastated. Don't worry, I'll fix it in 400 years. I mean, it's not, it's not exactly the most kind of a comforting thing in the world, in the, in the cognitive universe that Americans hap- inhabit. But that's what the psalmist is told, essentially, right? That's God's answer to the psalmist's plea. I am, in fact, cutting the monarchy down. 
And I am, in fact, going to magnificently, in a surprising way, resurrect it and fulfill all the promises. And so long after this text, and we saw this in the gospel reading this morning, a son of David comes, a servant king, the unique son of his father, the firstborn and heir of all things. And he, Mary is told by the angel, you might have noticed this in the angel's announcement to Mary, the Davidic language. He will receive the throne of his father, David. He will reign forever. No successors. His kingdom shall have no end. That is the forever echoed in this text. This is the glory of Christmas and of Mary's baby. The son of David, the son of God, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one with universal dominion. So, beloved, when the the providences of God seem to contradict the promises... We have to take a long view. The bitter tears and the prayers of the psalmist were, in fact, answered. They were answered beyond all expectations. And and so will your prayers, by the way, and your tears. The psalmist tells us God stores up our tears in a bottle. The answer may be eschatological. But the answer will be an answer in Christ tied to the resurrection and tied to the glorious future which is in his hands. That is finally what hope comes down to. The answer comes from one whose timetable is not our timetable and whose purposes transcend the conundrums and the doubts of our own lifetimes. This is a hard lesson to learn. And the lesson here is this. You know, when you think of these providences like the exile, like the cutting down of the monarchy, like the cross of Jesus itself, providences which appear to contradict the promises, they are in fact preparation for the promise to be fulfilled in all of its surpassing glory. We can only know that from a distance, though. It takes a lot of distance from the Babylonian exile to say, God, in fact, fulfilled the promises to David in a way that surpasses all expectations, but in a way which seemed utterly impossible to someone living in the 6th century B.C. We are often jammed into a position like this in our life, where we think the situation is so bad, there's no way it can in any way be redemptive. This is a text which says, Do not lose heart. Take heart at the way God has done these things. And thus we sing. Notice that the psalmist who composed this psalm, when he sat down and edited it and put it in its final form, you know what he put at the front? Praise. In the 6th century B.C., he praised God for his covenant love, for his fidelity, because somehow through the anger and the questioning and the accusations, he did, in fact, cling to God's fidelity and his love and his covenant. And so we sing of the Lord's great love forever because it stands firm in Jesus, the baby of Mary. So joy to Israel and joy to the world. The monarchy is gloriously restored. The Lord, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth, whose reign is forever, is come. Amen.